What's going on, everybody? This is Rafiki, and welcome to Power BT, a podcast that will take you to the West Indies and beyond with powerful short stories written by yours truly. Here, we will also dive into the history, culture, and literature of the region I call home and the parts of the world that help build it into what it is today. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode. I know it's been, it's been a week since the last episode with my cousin, um, shout out to the UK, shout out to cousin Isaac, um, but prior to that, it had been a month since, um, my last episode with the Ebo collection and with, um, I think the last story was Karaku Ebo, so I feel like, not that I owe anybody an explanation, but I'm just trying to get back into the swing of things for Power BT. I've had a lot of personal things going on, and I think as we all know, when it comes to creative projects that, unfortunately, um, they do not pay the bills, and so sometimes I have to worry about, you know, my other responsibilities to get through life, Um, and then obviously relaxing, like I had a brief vacation with my cousin here, I got to visit um, D.C., Um, took the train to D.C. and got to see the National Museum of African-American History, which I had been to before. I think I was like 15 or 16 when I went the first time. So now being 22 and visiting, it was just very interesting to see what had not necessarily changed. I don't think that the displays changed very much, but more so how my knowledge on black history um, and then like my focus on Caribbean history or um, like broader African history has informed like how I see what was in the um the museum I had a great time had a great time with family um reconnecting not even yeah reconnecting with someone who I've known for quite some time and known of for an amount of years even before then um but you know with immigration and and families moving across countries for those of you who have a similar story um you know that like you have cousins everywhere. Like I have cousins in the Caribbean still, I have cousins in the UK and Canada, all across the US. Um, And you know, unfortunately, when your family's so spread out, you don't necessarily get to connect with all the people you're related to. And and I think family's a great resource. It's not always the best resource. Family can be very toxic and can be very um, troublesome and things like that. We all know that family can just wear people down but I do like to look on the bright side of things and I'm very grateful that I've been able to cultivate um such a close relationship with someone who lives so far away um because you know that's how you build community community can exist right in your backyard and front yard or it can be across the ocean so that's kind of been like a highlight of my life recently um I don't know what else I would really share in terms of that but I'm trying to realign with Power BT, trying to get things focused again. I know we were talking about the Igbo nation of Karaku. We talked about how proud Igbo people are. I'm very happy to be talking about Igbo people because I grew up with so many Nigerians, um, many of which were Igbo or Yoruba. Um, and while there's not a Yoruba nation within Karaku, at least I get to talk about Nigeria. So Nigerians, Igbo people, wherever you may be, um, I hope you're enjoying this collection, this this group of short stories inspired by Karaku's Big Drum Dance, um, the, the Igbo Nation songs. That's kind of how I am building these stories 
and putting them together. But before we kind of get into today's story, I wanted to kind of take us across the waters from Karaku to another one of my homelands, um, to Guyana. My father's from Guyana. And talk about some things that I just learned recently, I think in the past month, and I was very, very shocked to see. So I'm going to talk to, talk to Guyana a little bit. I think that um, it's going to be very fitting because May is coming to an end. Today's the last day of May. And I believe that May is also Mental Health Awareness Month in the United States. So I think that this topic it really coincides with the times. Um, and I hope this sheds some light on a very troublesome issue going on within Guyana. Um, an issue that obviously the black community abroad is talking about. And that has to do with mental health, the conversation around mental health, depression, um, and unfortunately, trigger warning, suicide. So um, as of this month, or maybe even last month, I recently found out that you know, Guyana, very small country within South America, not known for too many things, even though I think that's changing as time goes on with the um, discovery of oil. Um, and before that, people knew about it because of the, the I think, of the massacre that happened. Um, and I know I should know the name, but unfortunately, it is evading me right now. But there was an American guy who went to Guyana and he had a cult and he killed a bunch of people by poisoning like food and Kool-Aid and stuff like that. Um, and so Guyana has kind of been under the radar in terms, I would say, of like maybe American or, or general Western knowledge, even though a large amount of West Indian migrants come from Guyana. Guyana, Guyanese people make up the largest ethnic group within Queens, New York. So one of the boroughs of New York, um, they're the fifth largest ethnic group in that borough. So our impact, I think, in some ways is large and small. But I recently found out in the last month or two that Guyana has consistently ranked among the highest in the world for suicide rates. I think it's comparable to um, Korea, North Korea. North Korea is the highest, and then Guyana, and then South Korea, which is crazy. Um, so the suicide rates across the world have been decreasing, um, but Guyana remains an anomaly in the trend, apparently, since the beginning of the 21st century. Guyana has led the way when it comes to increasing suicide rates in the Americas. Um, and this has be, been more prominent amongst different ethnic groups within Guyana. So Guyana is extremely ethnically diverse. For those who do not know, the two largest ethnicities in Guyana are the Indo-Guyanese, those descended from the Indian subcontinent, um, and the Afro-Guyanese, those descended from um, West African and Central African populations brought to the country due to the transatlantic slave trade. So with those being the largest ethnic popula populations and other ethnicities, including Chinese, indigenous, and mixed groups, um, the bulk of the suicide rates are obviously within the larger populations. 40% of Guyanese population is Indo-Guyanese and 29% is Afro-Guyanese. Despite the fact that Indo-Guyanese people make up for half of Guyana's total population. They're close to 50, but not quite. Um, Indo-Guyanese people account for 80% of recorded suicides. And the majority of those who commit suicide in the nation are between the ages of 15 to 34, 
which is so disheartening. I mean, 34 is a grown man, but not even halfway through the average lifespan. There's so much life left to live. Um, and 70% of suicides in Guyana are in rural parts of the country. So I don't believe that that includes Georgetown. Georgetown is the capital of Guyana, for those who do not know. But it would include villages and, and towns more so in the interior, um, which I do not know by name. I think I could think of one, like Barakara, which is actually... I guess it's a very small uh, village in Guyana that is known as the last Maroon Settlement. So for those who don't know about Maroons and Maroonage, it's when an enslaved African person ran away and became free and, just, and established their own community. And unfortunately, there were likely more Maroon communities, not only in Guyana, but in all of the West Indies and the United States. But, um, you know, colonial governments actively work to destroy them, kill people. And so you don't see that much. When we talk about Maroonage, we see a lot of it having to do with Jamaica and all these different places. But Guyana had Maroons too. Every place had Maroons. Anyone could be a Maroon. Um, and so with so much of this, of this, you know, tragedy when it comes to mental health affecting, you know, Indo-Guyanese people. And of course, all Guyanese people, but the bulk of them being Indo-Guyanese. And 70% of them being in rural parts of the country is just very very disheartening, very sad to hear. And I know this seems like such a pivot from the Igbo collection and the focus on the Igbo people right now within Power BT, but I wanted to bring it up not only because of the importance of taking care of one's mental health, but also because um, the Igbo people and many different African people were known to um, commit suicide um, to escape the, the traumas of their life. And while the Igbo people did do it in a sense because they knew that to them, um, death was not the end. Physical death was not the end. There are many, many accounts of how compared to all of the other African groups taken as slaves, the Igbo people were known to be especially homesick, to be especially, I think lethargic might be the word, um, due to their situation, due to being taken from their villages and their towns and their kingdoms into um, the Caribbean, into the Americas. And it's not far-fetched for me to say that the same thing happened due to the um, Indian diaspora that happened, especially in Guyana and in Trinidad, um, following the end of the transatlantic slave trade. For those who do not know, after the transatlantic slave trade ended, um, the British went to India and they took a lot of Indian people as quote-unquote indentured servants. Now, despite being labeled as indentured servants and despite, you know, the, the difference in social and racial stratification that Indian people exist in within the Caribbean, the labor and the work that they did compared to the African slaves was very much so similar, if not the same. The conditions were very much so similar, if not the same. Um, I actually watched an account a few years ago about uh, Indo-Guyanese woman. I think she was nearly 100 years old, and she was talking about how her, basically her father died because of illness, and they went to a, an obia man to get bush medicine, and all these different things because of their their low status within Guyana due to um, being an inter servants, essentially being the equivalent of slaves. Um, and this, on top of the 
you know, struggling economy that Guyana has, the corruption, which plagues every country. I, I want to preface that corruption and, and um, economic hardship plague every country. But of course, when it's a, a quote-unquote third world nation or a nation within the global south, people always highlight the fact that these countries deal with corruption and inequality. And, and the truth is, obviously, Western countries deal with the same thing. They're just better at covering it up. But for the everyday Guyanese person, life can be very difficult um, because there's not a lot of economic mobility, which is, you know, part of why so many people are leaving the country, why the country is ex- experiencing so much brain drain. And for those who live in rural parts who might not have the economic um, ability to leave the country, uh, depression is very common. People go to drinking um, and then people who drink might become more violent or abusive there are more cases of domestic abuse from alcoholics particularly men and how their alcoholism will affect their families um, and their other relationships and it just kind of goes on and on and becomes this domino effect that unfortunately leads to suicide so I was very 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 shocked to find that my father's country ranked so high in suicide I was I was shocked. I was. I was disheartened. I was disappointed. Um, and I really hope that talking about this on Power BT and talking about this online can help add to the conversation that I'm sure is going on. I know it's going on because people are writing about it. But I'm hoping that things can improve. Things can change um, because here in the United States, there's been a push to get a better understanding of mental health, um, especially within the Black community, whether someone's from the Caribbean or from Africa or or has roots here in the United States, um, the idea and the attitudes towards mental health in my eyes have definitely improved, Um, but we still have a way to go. Um, Obviously on TikTok, people are talking about, you know, black black therapists are talking about how to help one another and all these different things. Um, But even in my own personal life, I've seen people who are severely affected by depression and anxiety. I've met people and interacted with people who have suicidal ideation. I know that this is a very heavy episode, and I apologize if I did not give the proper warning, but I just wanted to stress how important taking care of your mental health is, why it matters. Um, I remember my mother told me a story about how an uncle of mine, who I never met, um, he passed away long before I was born, and he suffered from different addiction problems. When he was a child, I guess he was always made fun of. And one day, I think if I remember the story correctly, his teacher had suggested to my grandmother, my Nana, and this is my family from Karaku, they had suggested to my Nana that they take him to therapy. And my Nana being the woman she was, I mean, she was, she lived a very hard life, a very poor life, even by Karaku standards. Um... And just being a woman, the woman that she was, although she's very intelligent, you know, the idea of therapy and things like that. You know, West Indian people, I mean, many people from other countries are like, why are you depressed? You have a roof over your head. You have food in your belly. You know, the usual rundown about why you should be grateful. She ignored what the teacher had said about my uncle needing therapy. He goes on to live his life and he just has a lot of trouble and hard times. And he ends up dying prematurely. And I remember my mother telling me how she spoke to her her mother about it. 
And my Nana had said, maybe things would be different if I had listened. If I had known that he had such a problem, that there was a way to potentially help him, maybe he would still be here. And I get chills thinking about that, thinking how how one decision might have changed, not only changed a life, but saved a life, and then changed so many other lives. So I just wanted to kind of share this tidbit on mental health, you know, mental health issues in Guyana, the broader Caribbean, the African diaspora, and obviously the whole world, and how important it is to manage your stress properly, manage your emotions properly, talk to somebody if you need help. I know that people are so confident about telling people to talk to people, but I want to reemphasize the importance of actually doing that work, actually sitting and talking to someone when you need it. And even if you feel like you don't. Um, So I wanted to share that. I hope you guys appreciated this mental health tip. Um, And I hope you guys sit with that and really think about how this might be affecting your life or how it might be affecting someone else's life and how it can improve. bring it back to Parabiti's mission to the Igbo collection I wanted to share with you a famous song um, from Karaku's Big Dome Dance um, that really highlights Igbo pride I think general what is now Nigeria general Nigerian pride and talk about why I feel like this song is very important what it represents um, and break down the lyrics of course do the the usual translation what we're able to dissect before we get into the story that I've written inspired by this song. This song is known as um, Diama Diama Ibu Lele. Um, and I'm going to share a recording with you. I'll, of course, have links to the song in the show notes for you to all see. And then we'll break down what the song means and, and get into the story. So I hope you guys like the song. 
like I think I think the thing with this music is if you're listening to it I mean to think you're gonna hear Beyonce you're not I think that to understand religious music or you know music that represents culture so folk songs and things like that you have to listen to it with a different ear than if you're listening to something on Spotify or Apple Music so I kind of want to preface that um, because these recordings are very old and the quality of them is not always great but when I listen to the music from you know Saraka from Karaku's Big Drum Dance you know those two things are one and the same essentially I always try to look at it with a objective mind um, and listening to it again and I'm going to add the translations um, the best I can I think the song speaks a lot to how evil people and how a lot of um, enslaved African people try to to empower themselves in the face of so much adversity. So evil people are known, were known and categorized as being very proud, being very strong, being very resilient um, in the face of adversity, in the face of obviously the transatlantic slave trade. And this song highlights that, especially with the phrase "anyen bakafibo," which means nothing could do or that's that's a phrase that means nothing can hurt the evil. So the first stanza, which isn't necessarily said in the song, um, I think that a lot of these translations might have been coming from people who knew the language better, but were not necessarily performing the music. They were not necessarily the chant well, which as a reminder is the name of the lead singer of each big drum dance ritual. Um, so the first stanza is Semwen Negwe Ibo which means it's I, or it's me, the Igbo woman. And then they say, I am an iron man, also pronounced as diama diama, Igbo lelea diama. Now that phrase is not translated. It's not really known what that means, whether the word is iama, whether the word, the word is diama. That is not really translated. No one knows what that means. But then it's followed up by which means nothing could hurt the Igbo. They go back to saying Diama Diama Ibulele Diama Semwenboli Ibo, which means it is I or it's me, the Ibo Calabash. This confused me at first because I thought it was this is my Ibo Calabash, not that I am the Calabash. But for those that don't know what a Calabash is, a Calabash you could you could compare it to essentially a maraca. Um, it's a it's a shaking instrument that's made from like a, a dried and empty gourd. Um, and so I think it's made from like different, you know, gourd like vegetables. So maybe squashes and things like that. And they will fill it with, you know, different materials. So when you shake it, it makes a, a hissing sound, kind of like a maraca. And when I look at this line, this person saying that is me, it is I, the Igbo calabash or the Igbo, you know, instrument, musical instrument, it kind of adds to the fact that they're singing for their nation they are, you know, praising them, themselves, their roots. And they go on and on to say that Diama, Diama, Ibulele, um, Diama, Semwen Negwe, which is I, the evil woman. So kind of highlighting that the fact maybe as a woman is to spread the word, to use their voice, because the Chantwell is also usually a woman, um, to spread the, the word about the evil people, um, to spread the, the, the legacy of the evil people. That's kind of how I have interpreted it um so patois also known as you know french creoles it's a it's a tricky language and it's it's hard to decipher for me especially in karaku 
or in Grenada's context because the dialect is so different from Haitian Creole and from other French Creoles such as Dominican Creole, Guadalupean Creole, so on and so forth. But I'm trying my best and I'm using resources that I will of course share with you. I'll be sharing links to these songs and recordings within the show notes. But this song, I kind of, I, I like to sing it to myself when I feel like I need protection, when I feel like I need um, empowerment. So I, I sing this to myself sometimes when I find myself stressed um, and things like that, or when I find I need comfort. That's what I do with a lot of these songs, um, because I do think that words have power. And I think that the fact that these songs not only have survived so long, but continue to be sung and practiced, I, I think that highlights that. So for those of you, whether you might be from Karakou or not, I encourage you to sing the song if you need um, empowerment, if you feel like you need to be lifted up. And another thing that that I almost forgot to add was the fact that Ibo Lele, the phrase Ibo Lele, exists within Haiti. It exists specifically within Haiti's um, African religion, Haitian Vodun. And that was a comparison that Laura, Lorna McDaniel um, made. She studied the, the big drum dance, um, I think, in the 1980s. And she wrote, I think, two books on it, like scholarly um, journals on it. Um, and she speculated and put together kind of the, the potential um, pantheon of spirits and entities that might exist in Karakou's big drum dance, whether they're recognized or not. And because of the language, you know, the fact that both of these traditions utilize a French Creole language, both of these countries utilize the French Creole language, even though Caracol and Grenada do not anymore, she hypothesized that the Ibolele that is referenced within um, this song in Caracol may have once had ties with the Ibolele spirit within Haitian Vodun. And I took notes on this. It says that. Ayaman Ibolele is a Lawa within Haitian Vodou that represents the Ibo nation. In Haiti, it is also associated with Ibo Grand, Grand Moon. Grand Moon means adult elder and in Vodou, one who possesses spiritual wisdom. So there's a distinction between Grand Ibo, also known as Ibo Grand Moon, and then Ibolele. So I know I said three words or three names, but the first two names are once one Lawa and the second name is a different Lawa. The former Grand Ebo is known as the grandmother of the Ebo spirits, while the latter is one of the most powerful and well-known Ebo spirits within Haitian Vodun. Ebo Lele is not worshipped in every Haitian Vodou house. Um, supposedly, he's exclusively served and does not like to associate with other Lawa. He relies heavily on the people for his food, but people are unsure of what he wants to eat. So the information I found on Ibolele was very hard to even come across, even within Haiti's own context. Um, so drawing the comparison between Haiti and Karakou was very difficult. Um, but this is not the only song that mentions Ibolele, at least in the sense that Ibolele could potentially be a spirit or an entity. Another song um, titled Ibo. Move nation. Move means bad or wicked in French. So, evil, the bad nation, or the bad evil nation, essentially, um, also represents the phrase evil lele. I had done some research. I tried to see if lele as a phrase meant anything within evil, within French Creole, 
um, and I couldn't find anything, so I was very frustrated. Um, I've even heard Burner Boy, my favorite artist of all time, I've even heard him use the phrase Lele in the song before, and I was curious. I don't believe he speaks Yoruba, I, I mean Igbo, I know he speaks Yoruba. I was curious if it meant anything within the Yoruba language, but it doesn't. So I still feel like there's a lot of things left unanswered with this song and the potential connections. I think it just highlights how much has been lost due to the sheer destruction caused by the transatlantic slave trade. But I also think that this bridges a lot of space between Karaku and Haiti, between Grenada and Haiti. Um, it's potentially a thing that maybe this song or this phrase came into Karaku's Big Drum Dance due to people being taken from Haiti and brought to Karaku. I mean, the, the, the possibilities are endless, but this did, you know, strike a chord with me. I thought it was very interesting. I think this is the longest I've even spent dissecting a song on the podcast, which I think goes to show how, how much information is within it, you know, and what it could possibly mean. But I did want to share the fact that this song inspired my story, which I'm going to narrate, um, titled Kayak and Zoe. So I wanted to preface and add that these short stories that I narrate are not the origin stories of the Big Drum Dance songs in Karaku. Karaku's Big Drum Dance predates me. It predates these pieces of fiction by hundreds of years. Um, And I want to make sure that this tradition continues to be preserved and gets the proper respect that it um, is worthy of. So I hope you guys sit back, relax. Thank you for coming this far, listening this far. And I hope you enjoy um, this week's episode and this week's story. The year is 1796. Kayak hummed quietly to himself as he pounded cornmeal in the pot before him, adjusting his position carefully with a cloth-covered hand. His great-grandfather had taught his grandfather how to pound plants into various swallows, and his grandfather had passed it on until it sat with him. This story was not unique. As his ancestors, the new people of Karaku, grew accustomed to their home, their food evolved. What was once fufu became kuku but what was once sacred remained so. Kayak dipped a finger into the steaming kuku and plopped the mash into his mouth, wincing slightly as it burned his lips and tongue. Zoe, a young woman with uneven dreadlocks and dark skin, shook her head. You're too greedy, Kayak. That's why you get bun up every time you eat. Kayak wiped his light brown finger on the grass next to him. Ah, good. What can hot food do to me? You know I'm evil. Zo raised a brow. Oh, what is a matter? I am bakafe ibo, Kayak answered. Nothing can hurt the ibo. Zo smirked, her mischievous eye settling on the pot of bubbling food. Nothing, eh? I knew enough ibo and I eat before they brought me here. Proud people, but still mortal. All you does get real sour when you realize you're not special. Not alone, anyway. Kayak did not respond. Zoe watched as he picked up two wooden bowls from beside him and an iron ladle, plunging the ladle into the pocket. Kayak spooned Cuckoo into both bowls. Zoe pulled out a bundle of cloth and opened it, revealing okra she had fried from the day before. They split the meager portions between one another and ate in silence.
kayak's eyes fixated on his bowl as he slowly spooned the food into his mouth. He had known so for a few months, and despite his mixed race and their different birthplaces, they resonated deeply with one another. It was not often that they had time to sit and relax, but the ongoing rebellion in Grenada had pulled nearly every white man from Karakou to the main island. Naturally, the enslaved whispered about joining the rebellion, but the idea of fleeing Karakou only to be caught in Grenada was a strong deterrent. Yet I have an evil spirit, Zo said firmly. Kayak shrugged. I am evil. I'm proud for that reason alone. I'm not talking about your pride. I mean, you have a great ancestor bound to you. Ibo Lele. Kayak frowned. Ibo Lele? Who's that? In IET, we have many Loas, spirits that are dead, the divine, and more. Ibo Lele is one of them, an amalgam of all the Ibo who came and went, free and enslaved, good or evil. He is a fickle Loa, proud and powerful. Zo looked up at him. He walks for you, and he calls to me. Kayak gasped as Zoe jumped over the cooking fire and landed in front of him. Her eyes were wide but unseeing. Kayak scooted away from her, but she grabbed his arm, holding him in place. Placing another hand on his head, Zoe forced Kayak's eyes upward, directing his gaze to the cloud-ridden sky. Gade picute, Zoe commanded. Look and listen. A harsh ringing filled Kayak's ears and his eyes rolled back into his head as a string of drool fell from the corner of his open mouth. Kayak groaned as his vision went white, then black, before filling with a muted gray. His vision returned, and he gasped at the sight of a ring of crimson fire. The flames danced around him in a wide circle. Before Kayak sat an enormous dark-skinned man dressed in red and white robes, with a golden jewelry adorning his forearms. Zoe was silently prostrated in front of the giant, her shoulder-length locks spread across the shadowy floor. Zoe? Kayak swallowed nervously. What going on? The giant let out a guttural moan as it adjusted its position. It nodded its head slowly, and Zo rose to her feet. She turned to face Kayak, her eyes rolled back in her head. Kayak screamed as the giant picked Zo up in his fist and rested her on his head. The giant bent down, inspecting him with his golden eyes, his own face impassive. Eske ukonem when? the giant asked. Do you know me? Kayak nervously shook his head no before a realization hit him. He jumped to his feet and pointed at the giant, then grabbed his extended arm with his other hand and pulled it to his side, commanding himself to be still. Zoto me a name. Lele. You want a man, sisters? Hmm. That is a fickle question, and I am a fickle being. I am what your dead evil hope to be. I am what your dead evil denied to be. I am everything they are. Why am I here? Kayak asked. Ibu Ale's face dipped into an annoyed frown. Eske un konem wen, he repeated. Do you know me? I am not the Lawa that sits and waits for freedom. I fight for it, 
Even if I must take my own life and be reborn again, there's war across the water in Haiti and Grenada. You say you're evil, but you don't have a sword in your hand or a brain in your head for fighting. What you say you to me, huh? That's why Zoe knows me and you don't. Pick up a machete and fight. I will abandon you. What? Kayak started. I, 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 I can't do that. I don't even know how to get to Grenada. Evil Lily touched the ground with a palm, and the ring of fire around them shot into the dark sky in a furious plume. The fire began to race towards them, and Kayak screamed in panic. He watched as the flames poured onto Evil Lily's body, enshrouding everything except for his face. Don't let your light skin fool you. You're not free until your darkest sibling can do as they please. You're not Igbo until all Igbo may sing for me. The fire closed in, and Kayak screamed as heat brushed against his skin. He shot up from where he had fallen unconscious in the grass, and frantically swiped at his body, fighting flames that were not there. Across from him, Zoe slowly came to her senses. Realizing that he was not in harm's way, Kayak calmed down. The two looked at each other for a moment before Kayak spoke. Did you see what I saw? Zo nodded calmly. We, oui, I heard everything too. Evil Lele does not joke. He will leave you behind. Kayak swallowed nervously. If he leaves, what will happen? Does it matter? Zo sucked her teeth. His treach inspired to act. Don't let it be a lesson to learn from. Kayak nodded in agreement. He looked down at the grass around them, catching sight of glinting metal. Reaching over, he picked up the cutlass from the grass and dusted it clean. This time, Zoe was the nervous one. You know what you're doing with that thing? Kayak sliced the air deftly, creating a low hum with the blade. Don't worry yourself now. I am back after you, bo. Nothing can hurt me. We're going to be just fine. Well, everyone, that is it for today's episode. I really hope that you enjoyed the content, you know, the pieces on Guyana, on mental health, the pieces on the Igbo Nation, and last but not least, the story. Once again, all the information that I have used to put together this episode together is in the show notes. Please take advantage of it. Please follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Rafiki. Follow PowerBT on Instagram. I set up an independent Instagram page for people to stay up to date with the content that comes out for this podcast. Be sure to check out my novel, Radiance Lost. Um, and stay tuned for next week's episode. Um, I know that things have kind of, you know, fallen off with PowerBT. But I thank those of you who are still listening to the show, um, who are still sharing, um, recommending it to other people. And I can't wait to see you guys again next week. <laughs>